If you would not mind opening up your Bible, and if you didn't bring a Bible with you, just pull out your phone and find these passages, because I really would love for your eyeballs, which God made, to be looking at what we believe is the Word of God. Because we're going to look at some passages I don't think most of us stumble across on the average day. Uh, Luke chapter 1, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 11, and Philippians chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 11, and Philippians 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. I do not enjoy flying on airplanes. I will fly on an airplane because it seems like it's more and more necessary, but it's not something that I particularly enjoy because I'm not a big fan of turbulence. I know there are some of you weirdos out there that you enjoy it. It's like you're on a roller coaster. I am not like that. I don't like looking out the window, seeing nothing, and feeling a bunch of bumps. Just, just, just not a, not a fan of that. Uh, I know all the science behind it. I got Wikipedia, same as you, and I know that there's nothing to be afraid of. I know that that's not what actually makes uh, planes crash. But those facts don't make me feel any better. That's the thing about facts; they're true. They're not often that helpful uh, to us. There's one particular flight that I hate the most. It's between Springfield, Missouri, which is where I'm from, and Atlanta, Georgia. God hates the straight line in between those two paths and has made it very, 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 very bumpy. Right? I hate turbulence. The up and down, what's going to happen? You can't see what's coming. I think that's a perfect description of the times that we live in. They are turbulent times. Just, just never know what's going to happen. Things seem like they're up, they're, they're down. You read the newspaper, you find all kinds of things to be scared of. Brexit, I don't care about Brexit. I read an article in the newspaper yesterday. I'm all freaked out about the world economy now because Britain, which is the sixth largest economy, is essentially pulling it out, uh, pulling themselves out of uh, participating in the world. It's, it's a whole mess. I didn't even know to be scared of that. I'm scared of that. Uh, you say politics. I mean, we're headed into an election year. I mean, you talk about turbulence, you know. None of us want to talk about it. Maybe we shouldn't talk about it ever. But it, it, it just is, just everything is up and down. We've got natural disasters that seem like they're happening more and more and more often. I think turbulence is a great metaphor for the times that we are living in. And that probably has always been true. And it definitely was true in 4 BC, give or take a few years, when Jesus was born. The scripture starts by saying, in the days of Caesar Augustus. Now, all that you need to know from that phrase is turbulent times. I know that most of you have done a ton of research about Caesar Augustus, but for the few of us who have not, um, 
before Caesar Augustus was Julius Caesar. You, you've definitely heard of him. And on the Ides of March, he was assassinated. Three generals, governors, lieutenants, they dedicated themselves to tracking down the conspirators in the assassination of Julius Caesar. Augustus was one of those. And so they, they did. The three of them, they tracked down everybody who had a role in the conspiracy and they defeated all of Julius Caesar's enemies. Well, after they had defeated all of those enemies, they looked at themselves and said, what are we going to do now? We have this Roman Empire. There are three of us. Let's just divide it up into three. You take a sliver, I'll take a sliver, and, and you take a sliver. And so they did that for a while. But, you know, have you ever been content with your sliver? No. And so the three then go to war. One pretty quickly backs out. Another commits suicide. And Augustus is the last one standing. And so now he is the emperor of the Roman Empire. It's been turbulent times. He knows that. And so he comes up with this strategy. Essentially, I'm going to make everybody forget what was. And I'm going to convince them that we are starting over. And so he names himself the first citizen. Essentially, I'm not a dictator, which he was. I'm not a totalitarian, which he was. He said, I am the first Roman citizen and we are going to rebuild this together. He props back up the Republic, but it was totally a, a, a puppet government. He was absolutely the one in charge, but he does. He starts over essentially with the Roman Empire and he does a lot of great things, actually. He builds a lot of buildings. He makes some roads. He invites more um, invites more client states, which is what Israel was. They were a part of the Roman Empire, but they had some local leadership. There would be a Roman governor who was in charge of a region. That Roman governor is mentioned here. Uh, later on, when Jesus is crucified, that Roman governor is Pontius Pilate. But local leadership, that's why we read about the Sanhedrin in the Gospels uh, toward the end of Jesus' life. They were the people reporting up to the Roman governor who then would report back to the Caesar in Rome. Augustus did a lot of this. And he created a new system for taxation. And how do you know how much revenue that you're going to have through your taxes? You take a census. And all of that turbulence up on a global level has now caused Mary and Joseph to leave Nazareth of Galilee in the northern half of Israel where they are from and travel down down, down, down to Bethlehem in the southern half of Israel. When our son Jackson was born almost 14 years ago, it was February of 2006. Uh, we have a, what I think are some funny anecdotes about his uh, birth. I've told you some of those before. Uh, like we wore, literally wore flip-flops into the hospital on the day we checked into the hospital. It was ice on the ground. Uh, when we checked out of the hospital, a cold front had come in through. Little anecdotes like that. If you're parents, you are able to tell your birth story. There was lots happening in the world as well at that time, February 2006. In fact, they were deciding on Saddam Hussein's punishment at that time. Uh, Pluto was downgraded as a planet uh, around that time. Uh, Google bought YouTube. Uh, right, right around then. The first face transplant happened in 2006. It was also the time, some of you who are older may remember, when Vice President Cheney shot his friend in the face when they were hunting. That happened in February of 2006. I've told Jackson's birth story literally hundreds of times. Not one time have I ever said, hey, you remember when Google bought YouTube? That is when my son was born. 
I have never said, in the days of the first face transplant, in the days of our vice president having a hunting accident, was when Jackson Jones was born into the world. No, why? Because those two things have nothing to do with one another. What Google is doing, what is happening with Pluto and the birth of my son, that they didn't have anything together. And so they don't belong in the same story. But Luke, when he's writing the biography of Jesus and he's coming to a huge moment here in the beginning, Jesus is born into the world. How does he set it up? He, he doesn't set it up locally. He sets it up globally in the days of Caesar Augustus. What do those two things have to do with one another? What is the emperor of Rome and the birth of a baby who didn't even have his own guest room was laid in a manger? What do those two things have to do with one another? Verse four. So Joseph went also, uh, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth, born, she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So we are introduced to Joseph. And what is the description of Joseph? He was from the town of David, Bethlehem. That was his ancestral town. So when the census was being organized, that's the way they organized it. You need to go back to your ancestral home and register so that way up the line back in Rome, they can know how much money to expect from this client state known as Israel because he was of the house and line of David. And that's why I had you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 1 says, after the king was settled in his palace, that the king we're talking about is King David. And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, if you remember from the earlier in the Old Testament, God has had his people, the craftsmen of his people, design an ark, which essentially became his earthly throne and he had them build a canvas tent to put around that ark and he filled his tent and his throne with clouds of glory and wherever Israel would go they would take that tent with him now David years later has brought the earthly throne of God into the city of God but he feels that there is injustice happening because he the king a human is in a nice palace made of cedar. But he looks over out his window and what does he see? He sees the throne of God in a tent. And he said, it shouldn't be like this. I know who I am. I don't deserve to live in a palace like that if God is living in a tent. And so he wants to build a house for God. And so he goes to the prophet Nathan and the prophet Nathan does what a lot of us do when people come to us for advice, especially spiritual advice. We just tell them the first thing that comes to our mind. We don't pray about it. We don't think about it. We don't check in with the Lord. We just give him good advice. And Nathan does that. Nathan says, it's a great idea. Later that night, 
God says to Nathan, actually, it's not him that I want to build a house. So take this message back to David. So a few verses down, verse 11. Nathan goes back to David and says this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So David, you want to build a house for God, so great. Actually, God's going to build a house for you. Now, not a palace, but a lineage, a house that endures, leadership that endures. Verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, this is actually a big deal. When we're thinking about history, we think, well, yeah, that's, no, that's a no-brainer. God is just saying out loud what we already knew. A king has a son. That king has a son. That king has a son. They're just on and on and on and on and on. But that's not actually the way it had worked in Israel up until this point. For a lot of their history, they had no king. God was their king, but they yelled out to God, we want a king, our neighbors have a king, we want a a king. And so God gives them a king, Saul. Uh, Saul looked like a godly man on the outside, but the scripture says that God sees us on the inside. It's a good warning for some of us. Some of us look like a church person on the outside. Could not look more like a righteous person on the outside. God sees all the way into the inside today. And he saw on the inside of Saul that he wasn't a godly man. So God chooses David to be the next king. There's no relation between the two. So when God says to David through the prophet Nathan, your son is going to become a king, this is the first time that that kind of transition will have happened in Israel. This is a big deal. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David, it's not going to be you that builds a house for me I'm going to build a house for you and your son. He'll actually build me a temple. Verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love, I will never be, my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So just stick a pin in that theological issue. We'll come back to that at a later time. Your house and your kingdom, verse 16, will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. So God makes a promise to David. Your lineage will sit on the throne of Israel forever. But if you've read through the Old Testament, you know that really doesn't happen. God was right. David has a son, Solomon. Solomon builds a house for God. Solomon has a very, in worldly terms, successful reign. But then after Solomon, the nation of Israel is split into two. And then the leadership gets all mixed up. And, and then years later, the king of Israel isn't an Israelite at all. It's the king of Babylon and it's the king of Assyria. So let's fast forward to those days. And that's why I had you to turn to Isaiah chapter 11. At this time, Israel has been surrounded and is being destroyed by two nations. So so imagine if the Canadians came from the north. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Uh, They seem like such a peaceful people. And some nation from the south came and we were surrounded. That's exactly what happened to Israel. Assyria from the north, Babylon from the south. And Israel has been destroyed and is being destroyed 
And Isaiah the prophet brings this word from God. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now Jesse is David's father. So this is just his way of saying this is David's line. A shoot. Israel has been cut down to a stump. Are you picturing a stump? Right? A tree has been chopped down. That's how Israel is feeling in Isaiah chapter 11. We have been chopped down. We have been destroyed. And God sends a word. No, a, a, a branch of life is going to spring up from this stump. And then he goes on to describe what this king from David's line is going to be like. Verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Now he's going to describe what the kingdom will be like. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. So answering the question, why on earth would Luke start out Jesus' birth story with, in those days, Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome? When I think we can all agree that we do not frame our own children's birth stories in the days of President Clinton, in the days of President Bush, in the days of President Obama. We, we don't do that. Right? Why would Luke do that? Because in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, God is fulfilling Isaiah chapter 11. The reason that Luke says, hey, the, the king of the world, essentially, the emperor of Rome, in, in that day, this person was born because of what it says in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Because a king is being born in Bethlehem. Not just a regular person. But, and, and not just a king. But the king, that's why God sends the magi, the wise men, to Bethlehem. The, the, I'm sure Mary and Joseph enjoyed the gold if they felt like they could spend it. Not exactly sure off the top of my head what the frankincense and myrrh would have been. I mean, maybe that was like essential oils. Maybe that was like we're just, you know, catching up to them. They didn't need those things. They were not practical gifts that the wise men brought. The reason God put the star in the sky to bring these rulers from the east to come to visit the child Jesus is because Jesus was a king. And when future kings are born, all of the nations around come and pay homage. So it is absolutely imperative that Luke started his story with in those days Caesar Augustus. Not in those days Jared of Bethlehem was also born. 
In those days, little Cindy was born and Jesus was born next to him. No, what's the highest name that I can invoke to, to use as a context for the birth of Jesus, Caesar Augustus? And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there. Just using his own words in his own time. Verse 5 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as the Christ Jesus. So uh, Paul is, it wants them to be unified and get along. So parents, if you want to instruct your children and you say, hey, pay attention to this. But instead of just saying what you think about, you used one of our church songs. That's what Paul does here. He, he says, I want you to all get along. And the way I want you to get along is I'm going to quote this song that we sing to you. That's why if you look at Philippians, and I'm guessing for most of us, our Bibles, it has what looks like a normal letter. But in this section, it looks differently because it's a song that they would sing in their churches at that time. So he's just using this song to make his point. Get along in your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So this is the Christmas story right here. What John chapter 1 says, And in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But Paul is saying that the Word of God, the eternal Son of God, did not come to earth and use that as his advantage for a selfish game. He, again, he didn't go around going, uh, Hey, give me that, I'm the Son of God. He didn't come around saying, hey, do that for me because I'm the son of God. He, he, he put all of that aside, humbled himself to Bethlehem, but then he humbles himself even further towards Easter, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Again, this is why Luke has to invoke the name of Caesar Augustus, because at the time that Luke is writing this, reflecting back on 4 BC, Caesar, Caesar Augustus was the highest name in the whole world. No name was more powerful. No name was more influential. No name was more written down than Caesar Augustus. But John knew, Luke knew, Paul knew. No, there is a name that is even higher than that. This is why when Mary visits Elizabeth, her cousin, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, when Elizabeth recognizes through the ministry of John the Baptist in her womb that Mary is carrying the Messiah. She says, who am I that the mother of, and then our Bibles use this word, the mother of my Lord should come to visit me. So even as Jesus is in utero, Elizabeth is pledging her loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. Because he has the highest name. He is the Lord. 
He is the king, not just of Israel, but the whole world. Uh, reach down and touch your knee with me for just a second. Yeah. Uh, that knee one day is, is going to bend and kneel before the Lord Jesus Christ. This tongue, it is at some point, it is going to say, Jesus is the king of the whole world. Now, here's the gift of grace. God has given us an opportunity now to, to do those two things by faith. We cannot see Christ right now. But by faith, we can bend our knee and we can confess with our tongues right now that Jesus is Lord. So when we are standing before him one day, because we believe by faith, when we again confess that Jesus is Lord, he'll say, come into, with me into your inheritance. Come into your reward. But if you wait and you say, you know, no, actually, no. I am Lord. My philosophy is Lord. This other religion that I've been following, I think it's Lord. It's what I'm going to trust. Your knee and your tongue will eventually come into agreement with Philippians chapter 2. No, Jesus is Lord. But if you wait, the scripture says, Christ will say, you, you got to go away from me. Why? Because Jesus is the King and Lord of the whole world. And right now we're just invited to believe that by faith. But like Jesus' birth, it's not as obvious as we would like. Where was he born? In Jerusalem? In a palace? No, he was born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger, a feeding trough. Whenever I'm experiencing that turbulence on the plane, I always do the same thing. And, and I'm sure if you know this trick. I always look at the flight attendants. You know, and if, if they keep doing what they're doing, then I know we're going to be fine. And if they're still passing out peanuts, I, I doubt they're so committed to those peanuts that they're like, we're going down, but I really want to do an excellent job. You know. It's when they have a look of, oh, wow, this is bad, that then my anxiety goes off the charts or when the pilot asks them to sit down and buckle up their safety belt, right? But if you look to them and, and they, they can give you confidence, right? And when we experience turbulence, we want to look to Bethlehem because the king of the whole earth was born into turbulence so he can shepherd us through our turbulence, that's what Hebrews said when it says that Jesus has been tempted in every way that we have so that we would have a sympathetic high priest. So that when we're struggling, when we're doubting, when we're wrestling, when we're, we feel like we're empty, we can come to him and he can say, I know what that's like. But still trust me. And that's the message for us. We look to Bethlehem and what do we see? We see Mary and Joseph who were experiencing their own turbulence. Their whole life had been flipped upside down. She's pregnant. She's a virgin, but she's pregnant. Now I want you to think about if one of your friends came and told you that story. Mm-hmm. No, who would believe that? And, and, and probably not very many people believed her. And then who's going to stand by Joseph? Who's standing by her? Even we see in the Gospels, after Jesus was grown, there were still whispers about his birth. 
and its suspect nature. Their whole life has been turned upside down. But what do they continually do in these Christmas stories? They entrust themselves to God. And all the legends of our faith, God asks them the same question in one way or another. Will you trust me? To Noah, he says, I want you to build a boat. It has not rained on the earth at that time, but I want you to build a boat. To Abraham, he says, leave your father's house, leave your hometown and come and follow me. I'm not even going to tell you where we're going, but I'm going to make you a promise. Will you trust me? To Moses, he says, I want you to go and stand before the king of Egypt, which was at that time like standing before the Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. I want you to go stand in front of him and say, I want you to let go of all of your slaves because they belong to God, not you. And Moses has some doubts about that. Will you trust me? To David, David was anointed as king of Israel at the age of 16. And then you know what happened next? Nothing. It was years before he actually became the king of Israel. Many of you may be living inside of that gap right now. This is what God, your word says, and this is what I am experiencing. When am I going to experience this? Will you trust me? And to Mary, whose life has been turned upside down, flipped around, inside and out. And yet she continually entrusts herself to God. If you claim to call Jesus your Lord today, our God and Father will not let you live without asking you that question consistently. Will you trust me? So think about the turbulence that you're in right now. Maybe you're looking at the world's turbulence and it's, it's messing you up. Maybe you're looking at turbulence in your own life. Your own life has been turned upside down at this point. Will you trust me? And, and why should we trust him? Because he's not just Jesus of Nazareth born in Bethlehem. He is the shoot of Jesse who is becoming the ruler of the whole world. And one day every person who's ever lived is going to acknowledge that. And what a gift to us that we get to say it right now. Let's pray.